Hello everybody, this is uh, another episode of the podcast of Gabor Speaks. I am sitting here with David McDowell. You guys probably know him because of the previous episode when we were talking about Toastmasters and David's experience of, um, of how it was in Toastmasters in the past, let's say, five decades. <laughs> and how it is it now in comparison we had a really interesting talk but there are a lot of other interesting things about David that's my suspicion and this is our goal today to find out more about it and by it I mean more about the life of uh, David and the apropos for this uh, topic came from a Toastmasters meeting where David had a speech about uh, his life, how he sees things, what he has done, and I found it really, really fascinating. I mean, the amount of things that David has tried is just incredible. So I think maybe this uh, one, one and a half hours is not going to be enough just to list the things that David has done in his life, but maybe we'll have um, a couple of uh, amazing stories that we can all learn from. So let me welcome you, David. Hi. Hi, thanks very much. I'm pleased to be here with you again. Thank you very much for being here. So the first uh, question that I want um, to ask is that maybe there are some people who haven't uh, listened to the episode yet. I mean, the previous episode. So can you give a short introduction about who you are? What is it that you do in Poland? Huh, okay. I'm David McDowell and I was born and raised in Canada mm -hmm. and I've decided, well I looked around first of all and I thought you know I should go somewhere different. I've done a bit of traveling and I wanted to do some more traveling. I'm sort of semi-retired. I thought I would go to Poland and teach English because I thought at that time, foolishly, thought that COVID would be, <laughs> COVID would be gone or under control and I could lead some seminars teaching teaching English and doing some things like that. So I looked around Europe to see where there was a couple of things where they wanted people perhaps to do English teaching and where it would be receptive for that and also where it would be a little bit cheaper to live. Okay. <laughs> right? So you don't want to go to England because it's, or any of those places, it's far too expensive. And so I looked at Poland and thought, oh yeah, I can live there on my pension because I, I, I draw a pension, so I can live there on my pension and, and subsidize my pension by teaching English or just to adults, I don't want to teach children, and do it in Poland. And at the same time, because Poland is close to other countries, I could travel to several other countries. And I'm sort of planning on staying in Poland for three, six months kind of thing, not exactly firm in my mind yet. And then I'm going to travel who knows where. And I don't know when I'm going back to Canada. I haven't decided that yet. And that'll be probably a spur of the moment thing when I say, Oh darn! I've had enough of this. I'm going home. I'm going home. I think that's what it'll, it'll be. But yeah. do you already feel like that about no. Poland or? Oh no! I no no! I'm staying in Poland at, at least until at least until the end of February. Okay. Yeah. Before before I leave Poland, and then I'm just trying to decide where I'm going to go after that, and I haven't decided yet where I'm going. I'm looking at several different countries. I'm looking at Croatia, Montenegro. Ireland, <laughs> and so I'll go there for three months because you can only stay 90 days. 
Mm-hmm. I keep saying three months, but it's not actually three months. It's 90 days, and then you have to move on again. Okay. And what is your experience so far? How, how long have you been here? <laughs> three months. <laughs> oh, three months. Okay, so you need to move. <laughs> um, I need to go to the country and come back in, and I've got okay. that figured out how I'm going to do that. And there's some countries you can go to and you can stay longer. You're only supposed to stay 90 days. But the fines, because they want your dollars, because I'm from Canada and you know, people from America, they want uh, your money. Oh. <laughs> so the fines are really low. For example, I, I'm not sure about the fines in Poland, but the fines, if I stayed in Ukraine, overstayed in Ukraine by six months or something, it would probably only cost me about $40 in fines. Or <laughs> I mean, it's next to nothing, you know, because they want you to come back. And, and the mo- worst that they can do for you, the absolute worst, is they could bar you from the what's called the Schengen countries. They could bar you for coming for two years. And what do I care? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I sort of got it figured out, yeah. Poland is nice. It's the, the, I'm in Krakow. I was in Gdansk for about 10 days, I think. I really like it here. I, like, I, I can enjoy just walking down the street, for example, and spending one day just looking at the doors, all the different doors that they have or the windows that they have. Because hmm. we don't have that. We don't. We don't have that in Canada or the United States. We, doors? We, we, we have doors, but we don't have the history of looking at all these different things. They're so old because we're a young country. Okay. We have scenery after scenery after scenery. We have mountains, and uh, one of our provinces has got 100,000 lakes, so we probably have a million lakes all told in Canada. We're the second largest country in the world. We have the largest coastline in, in the entire world. Uh, you know, we, the people... Just as an example, I live in Western Canada. The people in Eastern Canada are closer to Portugal than they are to me. Wow. So, I mean, it, it, but we have scenery, everything, anything you can think of almost, you, you, you have it in Canada. It's just an absolutely beautiful country and lots and lots of people coming into Canada who, who are welcomed. And we, we, I know next year they still want another 350,000 each year for the next, I don't know how many years, four or five years anyway. Because we have lots and lots of work and not enough people to do it. Now, when we have the migrant crisis, you can have a couple of candidates to get into <laughs> your country. <laughs> Canada would probably accept them all somehow. I mean, you look at it from a different point of view. I mean, most countries, when they, you know, when you want somebody in, you don't want anybody coming who's going to be a burden. Mm-hmm and just draw on your tax dollars and so on, and you can use up your hospital cares and so on. So you want people who, who are educated and or who have the skills that you really need, such as uh, hospital workers. We need all kinds of hospital workers. Mm-hmm. That's not to say we don't need laborers, because we also need laborers. And what happens in a country is, like Canada or the United States, is you end up with so much work and people becoming educated that all the jobs that what you would consider perhaps the lesser jobs they won't do them and people from other countries will come in and they will do those jobs they'll do the serving jobs and the cleaning jobs and so on that Canadians are now getting to the point thinking well I don't want to do that you know working Mm -hmm. in McDonald's for example and so on and so a lot of immigrants will come in and they know it's a place where they can just, you know, make money, save money, live in a great place, mm-hmm. have a great life, and especially for their children. So, yeah, and once they, their children will become will become Canadians, 
they don't want to do their those work. It usually takes three. It usually takes three generations. Ah, okay. Yeah, it takes three generations, and so their kids will be okay, but the grandchildren won't. They'll become far more educated, and so on. Because uh -huh. there's an uh, extremely high rate, uh, same as Poland, from what I understand, extremely high rate of people who have bachelor's degrees, and and I always look at it and wonder, what value does it have? <laughs> what does it oh. have? I know you have to go to school. And you get a bachelor's degree, and I've often looked at it, and, and I still believe it's a, I still believe it's a paper chase, mm -hmm. because a degree doesn't make you any smarter. Yeah, it gives you more knowledge, but it doesn't make you any smarter. And I think we should be spending more time, maybe making people smarter than rather than just knowledgeable. Yeah, and so not not to mention the the values, morals, etc. Because yeah, like reading books doesn't really make you a better person. That's what I think. But uh, let, let's not let's not uh, continue on this no. thread because although it's really interesting, I, I really want to talk about uh, you and your life. Oh, okay. And I'm really interested how life was around the time when you were born. I'm I'm trying to calculate now because you are 81, right? Years yeah. old. So then you were born in uh, 1940. 1940. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> It's a long time ago. Yeah, I was born in 1940. I was born to, it, we ended up with a large family. I have uh, had, because some have died, I had five brothers, mm -hmm. four sisters. Mm -hmm. We're a very poor family, and there wasn't any much help around at that time, and my dad being very proud, he wouldn't accept welfare or anything. So I can remember days where all we had to eat was stale bread dipped in lard. Phew. And then when things got even worse than that, which they did on occasions, they got worse, what we would end up with, with white powder, we called it, and it was just cornstarch, and cornstarch in water mixed mm -hmm. together, and you ate that, and it would swell in your stomach, mm -hmm. so you'd think you weren't hungry. So, so we went from there. I left school as soon as I possibly could, which was age 16, you had to go to school. You legally had to go to school until you were 16. And I remember going as, uh, on my 16th birthday, or they said you have to be over 16. I remember going on my 16th birthday to quit school. And they said, no, you have to be over 16. So I went home that day, come back the next day, <laughs> and said, okay, I'm over 16. <laughs> <laughs> and, and quit school then, and I went to work for the railway. My first job, it was, it was a great title. I was a call boy. Mm -hmm. What was called a call boy? You know what a call girl is? Yeah. Call girl it's, has sort <laughs> of a sexual... Yeah, a really sexual thing. Yeah, she's a call yeah. girl. So I get prostitute. Well, I was a call boy. And when I was at that time, and you got to keep in mind that that's a long time ago. That was before... I was born before television, just for example. No such... It hadn't been invented yet. Wow. And telephones, not everybody had a telephone. And I was also at the time when you had all these party lines and you would pick up the phone and you'd crank it two or three times and maybe two short, two long might be your phone number and three long, one short might be my phone number and you, and there was always other people on the line listening. So because Other you, people on the line oh, listening? Oh sure, well everybody, yes, it was, it was party lines. So you would share a line with maybe, you could share it with 20 or 30 people. So you, you picked up the phone, if somebody was on the phone, you know, it was busy. So you, it's not, you know, it, 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 it was just different. So you know somebody was going to listen to you whenever you had a phone call. 
So at that time, the railway was one of the biggest things in Canada, railway traveling across Canada. And they needed crews, like you needed a brakeman, and you needed obviously an engineer and a second person uh, who worked with the engineer. And so a cowboy would go and he'd look at the list to see who was on call. And mm -hmm. so they'd say, okay, well, there's a train going from, from uh, Winnipeg to Toronto or something, and they need a brakeman. So it'd be my job to go on the bus as far as I could and then on my bicycle to the person's house and say to them, you're on call. <laughs> and then they would say, yeah, okay. And they would either go to work or not. And I learned very quickly that quite often, they, if they didn't want to go to work, they would say to me, oh, here's a dollar. That's a lot of money. <laughs> here's a dollar, tell them you couldn't find me. So then I'd have to go all the way back to the office check the call, see who was second in line on the call, and then go back out again. So you, you learn, I learned how to <laughs> sort of very quickly get two or three names just in case. And I always liked it, actually, when they turned me down, because you were doing your job, and then I was getting an extra dollar. That, that, was, that, that, was pretty, that was pretty good money. And what did the brakeman do? Operated the brakes on the train. Ah, okay. Yes, yeah. And he didn't want to do that? Well, no, sometimes they would just take the day off or they just didn't want to go in that day. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, and they were allowed to do that. They just said, tell them I'm not here. So the train couldn't leave unless you had a brakeman. Okay. So you went out and you got the brakeman and, of course, and the, the, the engineer who ran the train. And at that time, you had to have a second man on the, in, in the engine with the engineer. And they were all coal-driven. They hadn't got diesels yet. They were all coal-driven at that time, the trains. And so they had to have a second man because they hadn't invented yet a, what was what's now called a dead end, dead man's switch. Mm -hmm. So in case something happened to the engineer, if he died on the job, you had to have somebody right in the engine with him who would take his place who could stop the train. So you had to fill all those positions. So yeah, so I, I, I did that. I enjoyed that. And then I decided, for several reasons, I decided at age 16 they come up with a program uh, for boy soldiers, and so I decided to to join the army. Previous to that, I had forged both my parents' signature and mm -hmm. joined the army reserve, which I wasn't allowed to do, but I liked that, and that's when I was introduced to drinking. I thought that was even better <laughs> to be able to drink at that time. And, and so at age 15, I was firing a tank. At age 16, I'd fired machine guns, friend guns, Sven guns, threw hand grenades, everything that a 16-year-old boy would think was wonderful, you know, mm -hmm. all, all those great things to do. And so, did you think it was wonderful? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Took, didn't take part in a riot. There was, I was in a place called Montreal, Canada, and there was a riot downtown. And so they brought us all out to control the riot and we we were given this one street to go down and patrol and the feeling I can still get it in my mind, the feeling of power and everything was just so amazing. There was there was eighty of us and we were marching down the street. We had fixed bayonets. Mm -hmm. So we had our bayonets fixed. And there wasn't supposed to be anybody where we were. However, because the riot and the police had shown up, all these guys had and every the rioters had gone and run around, and they were in the same. They were coming down the same street that we were on. Mm -hmm. It was so exciting, and we were standing there marching down with our bayonets pointed towards them, with our, holding on to our rifles. There was a young lieutenant behind us. He had a weapon. He had a pistol, and we're assuming it was loaded. We don't know. And as you got closer and closer, you were just hoping that somebody would stop, and you could just give them a little nudge with your bayonet. It was crazy, and 
and exciting, absolutely exciting, thinking that, oh, they might stop. Well, then the, the, they found out that we were there, they being the military and the police, and they basically said, get those young guys the hell out of there. There should, no way should these 16, 17-year-old kids be armed <laughs> and involved in it. But, you know, as I said, they thought there was, wasn't going to be anyone there, and it would just be a show of force, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, military force. So, well, there was. So I saw that. I ended up with... And uh, who, who were the rioters? The I don't know. They're just rioting. We don't know. We were never told that. They were just rioting down the But uh, didn't you hear something? In well, the we heard, well, there was supposedly the riots from the hockey games. Montreal had a, a wonderful hockey team, mm -hmm. one of the best hockey teams, actually, that there was at that time. And Canada is a hockey-crazy city. And they had suspended some of the hockey players, and so the crowds were rioting. Because of that? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, the crowd, yeah, Montreal is a crazy, at that time, it was a crazy <laughs> hockey city, and Canada is a crazy hockey country, and so, <laughs> so, so, so there was that. That's why we're there. One of the trades I learned uh, in, in the military was uh, what they called an ammunition examiner, and that was, that was just a fancy title for learning how to be an explosive expert. Mm -hmm. We learned how to blow things up. Which, okay. Which was kind of nice. Again, I was 17 at that time. Can you imagine teaching a 17-year-old how to blow things up? So that was one of the trades. I ended up with about four military trades that I did and, and enjoyed it, enjoyed the life. I spent most of the time, I spent two years in Montreal and then some time in Winnipeg and then I was stationed in Germany. Mm -hmm. Went to Germany for just over two years and was still the occupied forces in Germany even though that was in 1960, I guess, when I finally got to Germany. And Germany wasn't allowed to have an army or an air force or anything, mm -hmm. no military. However, <laughs> knowing the Germans, they had, the, from what we understand, the largest police force in the world. Okay. Because <laughs> they were allowed a police force, so it said, oh, they took all these military guys, took off one uniform, uh, the military, mm -hmm. and put on these other uniforms. The fascinating thing about my whole time there, I spent more than two years in Germany, and the fascinating thing for me was that we only met, I only met one person who had served in the German army during the war. We never met another person who ever admitted that they were in the military in Germany. We all, we, and I used to talk to my friends about it and said, have you met any guys like, you know, <laughs> who was my dad, because my dad was in the military, so who are my dad fighting against in the, in the Second World War? Like, from everything we can hear, they're none of these guys. Kind of thing. So that was really interesting to find that out, and to spend time in Germany and learned a little bit of German, and that was my first exposure, I guess, to obviously to leaving Canada and seeing any part of the world. And where were you stationed in Germany? Yes, in the Zost, in the district called Westphalia. We were with, uh -huh. we were with what's called the BAOR, which is the British Army on the Rhine. Uh huh. Everything was run by the Americans at that time probably still is but it was, it, it was interesting I was over there when they had when the there was what was called the doomsday clock I don't know if you've ever heard of the doomsday Never. clock okay the doomsday clock goes back quite a ways uh, it goes back to that time and it goes back of course to President Kennedy in the United States and 
the and they were worried, of course, about the USSR at that time. It was not Russia; it was the entire USSR, the Soviet Union. Yeah? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, mm -hmm. and they were really worried about that. And they thought that there was going to be a nuclear war. And so they had this doomsday clock, and the doomsday clock was, if it hit midnight, or then they. The belief was then that that would mean there was war. Hmm. War would be started. So the doomsday clock was five seconds away from midnight. And we were in Germany at that particular time. And there was a, in the, the, the Bay of Pigs and some stuff going on in, in Cuba, which moved the do, doomsday clock mm -hmm. for us one second closer. So now there was only four seconds to nuclear war by this doomsday clock, as they called it. We used to do what was called exercises when we did. They were called bug outs. And what would happen is we'd get notified when we, we were all in barracks and, you know, and I was um, working in supplies. So we were driving trucks and we would get noticed to bug out and we'd just immediately leave our barracks, get into our trucks and move out. Well, we were called out to the parade square at about, I think it was about 11.30 at night. We were called to the parade square and <laughs> immediately, and it was really funny because there was guys out there, I hope you know what a parade square is. There was guys out there in their underwear still and everything, we get out there and they said, uh, we are going, now we are, we're, we're leaving and we're going on this particular bug out and we want you to understand that this is getting very close to war. As far as all you people are concerned, or all your soldiers are concerned right now, you are strictly cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. Your sole job is to, pre is to prevent the USSR from coming totally into Germany and to provide a 24-hour resistance. All of you are considered as dead. Wow. You're basically what they call written off. You've been written off and your job was to provide 24-hour resistance so that the United States can mobilize. Because Kennedy is going to be doing something in the morning that could trigger a war. Wow, how did that make you feel? <laughs> we didn't care. Most of us just laughed and said, yeah, okay, where are we going? And they said, well, you're heading towards Berlin. And we said, yeah, okay. Seriously, like they basically told you that you are going to die, probably. Well, no, you're written off. You're nothing. You weren't considered anything. You were just provide twenty-four hour resistance. You were cannon fodder. I, I understand that, but like, really, like you were just laughing at that. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> Most of us were. We just thought we didn't think it was that serious. We just didn't register at that time that you know that anything that ridiculous would happen. Uh, that's a nuclear war you're talking about. And we okay. thought, well, no, that's that's just not going to happen. And and so we got in our vehicles and, and obviously and headed headed out there. And so what was happening actually, and here's what President Kennedy did at that particular time, is it every day President Kennedy or the United States, I should say flew a helicopter over East Berlin and took pictures and so on. Mm -hmm. And they did this every day. And then, who was it, Christian?
USSR, I can't remember who was in the power now, it's just gone from me. He, they said, USSR said, if you send one more helicopter over to fly over, we're going to shoot it down. And the United States' response was, if you shoot it down, we will consider that as an act of war. Mm -hmm. And so the next morning, Kennedy flew two helicopters over. And he said to the USSR, I didn't, I followed your direction, I didn't send one helicopter over. So we learned about that and we laughed and, and everything. I mean, that, you know, it, was, it was just exciting. And of course, we were all young, mostly young people and drinking. The, the ones who had more sense than us obviously were worried, but uh, we weren't worried. I was only 20 years of age, so what did I care? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I just, you just look at things differently when you're 20 versus 30 and 40, as you know. So that part was interesting. The other part that was really, really interesting was at six o'clock at night, and we were told, we, we, would, we would listen to the American news. The American news usually came on at 10 to 6. Uh, we had Radio Free Europe, it was mm -hmm. called at that time. I'm not sure if it's still around or not. But anyways, we, we would get the news I no idea. just on radio and Radio Free Europe. And, and we would hear the news from 10 to 6 to 6. From, from, and then we were supposed to shut off our radios. Because right after that, a woman named Moscow Molly came on the news. And we love to listen to her because I think she was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant woman. Because we would just we just finished hearing the news from the American point of view, every single thing, you know, for ten minutes, and then Moscow Molly would interrupt, take over the radio waves, and say, "Hello, Canada, United States. This is Moscow Molly calling you for those of you who want to hear both sides of the story." Oh, and then she would repeat the actual news we just heard, only from a different slant, a different viewpoint. From so the point of view of the Soviet of, Union? Of, of the Soviet Union, uh -huh. yeah. So it was just great, because there was a, a lot of conflict going on at that time in, in, in the Middle East, which I guess there always is. So soldiers were over there fighting and being killed in the Middle East, and so we'd hear the American viewpoint, and we'd hear her viewpoint following it. It was just fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. We, we, we'd they kept trying to block her, but it seemed like nobody could block her. Mm -hmm. So we'd listen to her, and we were supposed to not listen to her, but obviously as soon as you're told, well, you can't do something, <laughs> you, you want to do it, and you say, oh, yeah, yes, watch us, and we'd listen to her. So that part was fascinating. So I liked, I, I enjoyed it. I spent seven years, just over seven years in the Army, mm -hmm. and, and got out, learned how to drink, drank way too much at that time, <laughs> way, way too much, because I... Um, in Germany at that time where we were stationed and everything, <coughs> you could drink, the, the, the bars closed at five in the morning mm -hmm. and then they opened back up at six or six. In the morning? In the morning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you knew that if you wanted to drink at five o'clock, you ordered three or four more beers <laughs> to last you until six o'clock when it opened. I mean, it was crazy. It was a drinking man's paradise. and. We used to go to, to, to different places and um, we went to, I'm trying to remember what city was in. I'm, God, my memory must be going. We went to the Reeperbahn, it was called, which is the Sin City, which is the, the, sin, the city in the world with the most sin. Hmm. 
is what they considered it in, in Germany. And we'd go there, you could see all kinds of horrible things, anything you wanted and, and take part or watch any sex acts or anything that you want. It was just totally, totally sinful. We were paid in, we were paid in German marks. The United States was there at that particular time also and, and the United States caused all kinds of problems for us and for every other soldier that was there hmm. because they paid their soldiers in American dollars. So in Germany it was marks and finnings and so you'd pay let's say one mark for a glass of beer. Well the Americans were starting to pay one dollar for a glass of beer. Oh, They'd give them a dollar. Well at that time there was four marks 37 finnings to a dollar, Canadian dollar, uh -huh. which was just about on par with the American. <clears throat> so we'd go into the <laughs> into the pub close to the American camps, and the waiter would come over and we'd get our beer and he'd say, you know, four bucks. Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> the language and what we would tell him to do with his four dollars and so on and so on was always interesting. <laughs> There was no way we were paying. When we could get four beers for that, we could never understand the Americans. So they were ruining, they were ruining the local economy that way, mm -hmm. totally ruining it. And I don't know if you remember a singer named Elvis Presley. Yeah. Okay. Elvis Presley arrived while I was in Germany, actually. Oh. <laughs> and so he was there, and but you never got to see him or anything, and he never got out of the American camp and or anything like that. But he, we knew he was there. The British were there. British soldiers, Belgique soldiers from Belgium, and up until that time, from what we had been told, Belgium had yet to sign the peace treaty. Mm. They didn't sign the peace treaty. No, they hadn't signed it. They were in consider. We were told that they hadn't. The Belgique people told us that that uh, they hadn't signed the peace treaty because they weren't ready yet to make peace with Germany, even though the war had been over for over fifteen years. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> they were really interesting. They, they. The officers bought their own uniforms, they bought their own weapons, their own rifles, their own guns, and they had, they had a, a tent city, they had a barracks, and, they, and then they were on leave. And so they rotated, so they'd spend four months in a tent city, four months in barracks, and then four months on vacation, on leave, and then come back for it, and that's how they rotated all their soldiers through Germany. Which okay. Was really it, it? It was fascinating. It was a good time. And why did they do that? We don't know. We just figured <laughs> they had nothing else to do. We don't know why they did. They have <laughs> enough room anywhere, and that that that's just what that that's just how they treated them. Anyways, I left. I got out of there. I left the army. As I said, I was drinking too much, <laughs> and I came back to Winnipeg because that's where I was born and raised, and got a job. First of all, working. In what was called Minnesota Mining Company. So, and I, I was just parts man because that's what I did in the military. In the military, I looked after parts. I was a, I was a parts person, and I was very good at it. I, we had well, what does that mean? Parts, supplying parts uh -huh. to vehicles. Okay. For anything that they, they needed in the military, I can still remember some of the numbers, the the things that we did because at that time they had just numbers, part numbers. Everybody still has part numbers. And then when NATO was formed, they came up with NATO numbers. And so 
the the numbers were the same, so that if you were ordering a part from in Belgium, from Belgium or Ger or not not necessarily Germany or Britain or any of the NATO countries, the part number would be the same, and you'd get the same for and and the part numbers were thirteen letter thirteen numbers long, and so you and I was pretty good at it because I was good with numbers, so I always knew what parts they want or wh where they could get them, and we stored them all in our trucks. Hmm. So yeah, so that, that part was fun. Yeah, I got back to Winnipeg, got a job there, and decided, I don't like, I really don't like this. And then a friend of, a friend of the family said, why don't you come to British Columbia? Because there's lots of work there, and you can go work in the lumber industry. They always need people. So I went to British Columbia and got a job I was, as a painter. So I was learning how to be a painter and did well, learn well, What did you paint? Anything in the mill, anything that needed to be painted. We painted houses, we painted uh, mm -hmm. um, everything in the mill. And, and at that time, that was long enough ago that rollers hadn't been invented yet. You either sprayed or brushed. There was no such thing as a roller. Okay, to paint, right? To paint, yeah. Uh -huh. Hadn't been invented yet. So I was a brush painter, and and we used to complain all the time because uh, because brush painters got paid less than spray painters. <laughs> and we were saying, but we're the ones who have to do all the real finicky and real good work. And then roller painters came in. They just started to come in, and they got more money than us too. Oh. And I became, anyways, I became a journeyman painter. So I was qualified as a painter to do whatever it is. When you're not qualified as a painter and you're just learning how to paint, you're only allowed to paint new wood. Hmm. You're not allowed to paint old wood or repaint something until hmm. after you've learned how to paint. So I became a painter and I worked there. Why was that? That you could only paint new wood? Yes, because then it could always be fixed up if you really screwed it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was the thought process. Okay. Anyways, while I was a painter, I I, <laughs> I didn't like my foreman, and and I decided one day that you know uh, he used to uh, he treated he didn't treat me very well. I won't oh. go into much of it, but I decided one day I was going to quit. And he used to come around every Friday around two o'clock, and I'd be up on a ladder painting this huge mill, whatever, or some of the chains or something. And he'd and I'd have a big bucket of paint, about half of a five-gallon pail full of paint up on the ladder. And I thought today, today I'm going to I'm, I'm I'm waiting for this guy to come. He's going to show up, and I'm going to dump the paint on his head. <laughs> and I'm going to tell him what he can do with his job. <laughs> and he never showed up. <laughs> he never showed up, and I thought, wow. He felt something. <laughs> I don't know what he did. I, I don't know what he did. I worked for him, and it, it it was tough because it was just a small painting department, and there was him. He was the foreman. His brother was a painter. His son was a painter, and me. So there was <laughs> that. That was the painting department kind of thing. So I got most of the lousy job, lousy jobs, but. Now, so I, at least I learned how to paint, so I became a journeyman painter. And then I decided, well, I didn't want to be a laborer. I felt that I was far too intelligent to be a laborer and a painter forever. And I decided I would become an accountant, mm -hmm. only because they made more money. No other reason. And so I took a course and I became a, a, what was called an RIA, which is a registered industrial accountant. 
And these people I met in the course, they were all males, and it was a male-dominated industry anyways, a forced industry. Not a lot of women were in the workforce at that time. Mm-hmm. They, they just weren't. I li- listened to all these guys, and I thought, these guys are all boring. <laughs> accountants <laughs> are so boring, I can't stand it. Like, I'm not going to be an accountant. I couldn't stand it. These guys are too boring. But <laughs> I became an accountant, and then, I, and then they had... Why, why did you move forward, then, if you I, thought that they are so boring? Well, money. Okay. Just straight money. Everything was money. I thought, you know, like, and you know, not that I was making that much money at that particular time, because I'd worked in Winnipeg after I'd left the army, and I was making actually a dollar fifteen an hour. Uh huh. <laughs> well, what could you buy for a dollar fifteen an hour that time? A beer in Germany was. <laughs> no, no, on a beer in Germany was only a mark forty pfennigs. You could buy four or five beer actually for that much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't bad. It's like That's a good benchmark. Nowadays, you just uh, you handle more money. I do not believe people are any better off today. They make far, far more money, but you just handle more mm-hmm. money today. A house at that time was you could buy a house at that time for ten thousand dollars. Uh-huh. The house today to buy in Vancouver or anywhere there is the cheapest one you could buy would be probably seven hundred and fifty thousand to a million dollars. Wow. And the same quality house? Yes. Mm-hmm. Houses that people bought for ten to twelve thousand dollars are selling them today for seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred thousand dollars. And they're still doing it. So I think you did better. Well anyways I found out in British Columbia I got I started off I got two dollars and thirty six cents an hour. And I thought, Wow, that's a lot of money. That's an unbelievable <laughs> amount of money. So it was good. At two thirty-six an hour, and then we got a, a raise to forty cents to two seventy-six an hour. Worked in the union and, and in the sawmill there, and I thought this is just great. I mean, you know, it's, you could do whatever you want. You could afford to, you could afford to buy a house. You could afford to buy a car. Almost instantly, because you didn't need hardly anything for a down pay, down payment on the house at that time. Uh, a cheaper house, obviously, but you could, all you had to come out with was five hundred dollars for a down payment on a house. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't know why I didn't buy ten at that time. I just wasn't smart enough, I guess. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that simple. So I became an accountant, registered accountant. So I thought, oh well, that's kind of nice, but I didn't like it. I wanted to do something far different. Then there was a job that was known as the timekeeper first aid attendant, so I took a first aid course and became a first aid attendant. And again, that was years ago. You have to keep in mind all the time when I'm talking that that was years ago. And what is a first? First aid attendant uh-huh. is you're working in a sawmill or in a, somewhere in the forest industry where they're falling and, and cutting down trees and so on. Anyone who gets hurt, you look after them. Mm-hmm. And doctors are not always available. Okay. And in some of the camps, for example, I know in some of the camps, I didn't get to one, but in some of the camps, the first aid attendant there, he would do everything. He would be delivering babies, everything. Because there was no way at different times, because there was no way to get into the camps. You couldn't fly into the camps in bad weather. There was no roads into the camps. Okay, so there were women in, in the camps. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Guy would bring his wife in and so on, yeah, because oh, okay, okay. they lived in there. And But in the sawmill and that, in the area where I lived, there yeah, so anyways, the, the, the first aid attendant would look after all that, and he worked nights, I worked nights, and got paid well, and also did the payroll, so I learned how to become a paymaster. So I was doing the payroll, 
for 600 people at that time. It's not like it is computerized now where they do everything, <laughs> you know, multiply. You had to do it all. We also had a town site, so you were looking at a gas station, so you were looking after the, and the store. So you were looking after all the accounting and everything and the payroll deductions and so on for all those things, for all those men and so on, and doing, and doing first aid at the, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, you it had sounds like such an odd combination. Oh, no, no, it was a very common combination. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Okay. Time giver, first aid attendant. Yes, yes, it was. It was very common. While doing accountants. Oh, and yeah. Job and yes, and yeah, because you had to do something. Because it wasn't enough work. Just you couldn't just sit there and do nothing. <laughs> okay. And wait for somebody to get hurt. So you just, you know, right. Every day, like please, somebody <laughs> yeah, die. Yeah, yeah. Right, so, so the job was designed basically. So you did about, you, you, you were there for eight hours and you had about seven hours work. And so I had a, an hour which you did basically nothing every day. And you needed that extra time just in case somebody did get hurt. Because there was some terrible things, terrible accidents can happen in the forest industry. Sure. And I was in a sawmill and some really terrible things can obviously happen. And you're the can guy. Can you give an example? Yeah, and, and what they call the planer mill, that's where they plane lumber to make it nice and smooth. You know what that is? This makes it smooth, it goes through a planer. Yeah. I'll, okay, yeah, the planer mill, and you're feeding the planer. There's a thing that grabs the wood and drags it into the planer, and it's called a pineapple because it looks and sh it is shaped like a pineapple, but it grabs, and if you get your hands too close to it, it'll grab your hand and take it in and mash your hand up. Mm -hmm. Just to totally mash it up. Cool. We also had a shingle mill where I worked, and that's where people make shingles. They cut shingles. Well, what is a shingle? <laughs> a shingle goes on your roof or on the siding. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, wood shingles. And none of the sawyers at that time in any shingle mill in British Columbia, or probably anywhere in Canada, had all their fingers. They, al <laughs> they always cut off fingers. Oh. That was one of the risks of the job, I'll explain the job to you sometime, <laughs> but that was one of the risks. So it was your job to bandage them, to look after them. We had, uh, I had two deaths the whole time. I was a first aid attendant. The first one, that was really hard to deal with. For how long were, were you? I was first aid attendant, I think about three years. Uh -huh. So two people had died, get killed themselves. One had just died with a heart attack and the other one had killed himself. And that was kind of hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. But other than that, <coughs> then, and so I became a professional paymaster. But uh, how, how did you deal with that, with, with the deaths of uh, those people? You bandage them up, do what you can, get them ready, and send them from the ambulance to the doctor to the hospital. Mm -hmm. yeah, and did you feel responsible that they died? No, not mm -hmm. at all. But you just, you, 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 you think, what else could I have done? And that doesn't leave you for a long time. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else I could have done? Could I have stopped the bleeding faster? The guy should, could I have should I have gone over there instead of them coming to me, bringing him to me? Uh, what could I have done differently? Mm. And that part was hard. The one guy who died, his name was uh, Frenchie, and he had five kids, and I knew he had five kids, five young children. And you're thinking about that in your mind. You mm. think, what the hell are these kids going to do with his wife? And, because then she's going to have to leave the house that she's living in because she's living in a company house. And mm -hmm. if you're not working for the company, 
you're out of the house. Yeah. And what are they going to do? And, and of course, at that time, too, there wasn't a lot of benefits for widows or for anybody. So it, w it was just, yeah. So it probably bothered me for about a year or something, back and forth, you know, every once in a while. I still think about it. I still remember it. But, but it was a job, and, and job the same as everybody else had. They had that job. And I decided I wanted another promotion. <laughs> I mm. wanted to move on. I wanted to do something else. And there's more money in management than there was in the union, so I was taking lots and lots of management courses, learning how to manage people and what to do and what not to do. And then I became a purchasing agent, mm -hmm. and because there was a job opening for a purchasing agent, so they gave me the job as the purchasing agent, and that's buying things, buying everything for the mill, every single thing that they needed, and you're buying them, and you got to get the right thing at the right price at the right time, sort of. So I became, I joined the, pur the uh, Purchasing Management Association of Canada, became a professional pur purchase, purchasing agent. Mm -hmm. So now I had three professions. <laughs> but wow, that's kind of nice. And I always wanted to be, at that time, I made friends with this guy who was the they were called personnel officers at that time. Nowadays, they're called human resource officers. Mm -hmm. They were called personnel officers. I always wanted to be a personnel officer. And I remember going in to see this guy who was the personnel officer, and I said to him, you know, I really want to get ahead. I want to do something different in this mill. I, I, you know, I don't want to just be in purchasing or anything. And his name was Alec, and he said, well, what is it you want to do? What job do you want? And I said, I want your job. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, here's how I'll tell you exactly how you can get it. Really? <laughs> yeah, a job like his. You know, he, wasn't, he just laughed and said, I'll tell you exactly. And so he laid out my plans for me and what to do so I could become a personnel officer. Okay. <laughs> and that was to learn more about the union contracts and to uh, learn about occupational health and safety because you were responsible for occupational health and safety, you're responsible for labor relations, you're responsible for negotiating with unions, all kinds of what I thought at that time, I still do actually, were really good things to do, really exciting things to do when you keep your mind uh, sharp at all times. Yeah. I went to school the whole time, I went to night school, I went to night school for just over 14 years. I had and although it's quietened down a little bit but not totally I have an unbelievable thirst for knowledge mm -hmm. I wanted knowledge in everything and anything regardless of what it was I just wanted to learn there was no internet at that time so the way you had to learn was to subscribe to maybe magazines or join different clubs and things like that that's how you learned mm -hmm. There was no internet that you could go to. There was encyclopedias, but people didn't really. You, you, everybody, had, almost everybody, had a set of encyclopedias at that time where you can look up some information. Yeah, but if you wanted to learn, you almost had to join some clubs or some different things. And <clears throat> I ended up I joined what was called and belonged to the Institute of Brain Research mm. out of California. And they said at that time that. Uh, the belief was that human beings only use 10% of their brain. Mm -hmm. The other 90% they don't use mm -hmm. for thinking and so on. And today that has changed a little bit. 
and the fact that today most scientists and brains people and so on believe we only use one percent and that there's 99 percent of our brains we aren't using properly mm -hmm. so i kind of like that i like the idea of it and i thought okay so how can i use more of my brain i have a hundred percent belief even to this day that everybody is probably 10 times smarter than what they believe and schools especially keep us down mm -hmm. they cater to the lowest common denominator so nobody you know if you're really really smart you're still in you're still with people who who are not that far ahead of you so if you're you know, you can't necessarily skip grades. At that time, you couldn't skip them very easy anyways. And so you're, so to me, I used to look at it and think, well, look, I'm stuck with these people who are only learning at level one, and I should be learning at level four or five. And our schools still do that. We don't divide. We don't take the best people and really encourage them. We take the best people, and they work at the same level as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think we're making a huge mistake with that, a huge mistake. So as I said, I believe people are 10 times smarter than they are, so it's schools that hold them back, and, and I think everybody else, society holds us back because we, they keep saying, society basically says this, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. Do you know that we're, we're told no, as children growing up, we're told no, 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 130 times before we're told yes. Mm -hmm. So for every yes that we hear, we hear 130 no's. You can't do this. You can't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> and then we wonder why people are, you know, often why people are held back. They, 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 you go to school and you, they say to you, okay, well, you're a C student. They used to mark A, B, C, D. So they went, you're mm -hmm. a C student. Well, if you move to another school, they didn't know you were a C student. And I've had several examples of this then you could become an A student or a B student. But as soon as they found out that you're only a C student because they got the information from this previous school you went to, suddenly you were a C student again. So they didn't encourage, nobody encouraged you. I don't see our schools or work or anything encouraging you to do extra things. It's really difficult mm -hmm. to, to, to get there. We don't teach our supervisors or managers how to get the best out of people. We're just starting, like, just starting to do that probably in the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Very, very difficult. So we're, I believe we're holding everybody back and we should be doing all kinds of things mm -hmm. that, that we're not doing. Although I also recognize the problems with it and it, and it, and, and it causes money. I mean, we go to school for, why do you go for, to school for 12 years? Why isn't it nine or 13 or something that, you know, it was decided in England actually years and years ago that nine years was the pro to start off with was the proper number amount of time you should spend in school. There was no rationale, no thinking behind it. They just said nine years is a good time. And then you should go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you, th and then you can learn something and go somewhere. So I've always had this thirst for knowledge. Wanted this. I still want the knowledge. I've done all kinds of things. I've done all kinds of other professions. I've run hospitals. I've been a human resources manager. I've been a labor relations officer. I've negotiated contracts. Uh, I've 
done all over from one side and on the opposite side I have looked at it and said I want to get involved also in what I call the weird and wonderful that nobody knows. So I decided that decided that I I gotta hesitate here because you might think I'm not. I decided I was gonna be <laughs> <laughs> too late. <laughs> I decided I was gonna be a psychic. Okay. And so how do you decide to be a psychic? It never made sense to me. But anyway, I'd gone to a few fortune tellers as they're called and so on and, and listened to them and I thought Holy shit. <laughs> I can be a psychic. So I decided to do psychic readings. And I did palmistry. I did how it. to leave poems, right? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, I did palmistry. Uh -huh. What do you call it? Palmistry. Palm. Palmistry. This is okay. palm. Okay. Palm, yes, palm of your hand, palmistry. I did iridology, that's reading your eyes. I did stuff to read the bumps in your head and tell you. And then I was doing it so well that I was invited to, jo to join what was called the psychic circle. Those are professional psychics who traveled around doing psychic readings and they had heard me and they had attended some of my psychic readings and said we would like you to join the psychic circle <laughs> and I thought wow I got <laughs> I loved I didn't never I never joined by the way I, I loved Why them not? I, because of, uh, partially because of my beliefs I, I believe that if I did know that if it, it, several ifs if this is the truth, what I'm saying, because I would tell you your future, if it's the truth, and if I have this knowledge, the knowledge must come from somewhere, and so therefore it must come from God, my belief of God, not necessarily yours or any, certainly no church's belief of God, my belief of God, if it comes from God and it's a gift, then I don't have the right to charge for my gift. Oh. So I said, no, I can't do it because then you have to pay. And they tried to talk me into it and saying, oh, yeah, but if it is, even if it is from God, God won't mind. You know, you're, you're a school teacher. If you want to be a school teacher, you still get paid for it. That might be a gift from God. And I'm saying, no, I can't because it's got to do with different, really different things that not, not everybody believes in. I did like all kinds of it. Where I lived for a while, <clears throat> it was not too far from a witch's school. That there are such schools to teach witches? Yes, there's several, many oh. actually, not several, many witches. So <laughs> I thought, well, I should learn a bit more about witchcraft. Because that seemed kind of like an interesting thing. And, and it's totally against the church. Why is the church against it? And they... And so I investigated and found out, wanted to know something about it and what was happening and why did we do this with all these people and, and especially with the witches. What value did they have, if any? And what do they know, if any? Because witch, witchcraft, or it's called a Wiccan, it's a religion. I heard about that part, yeah. Yeah, yes, it's a religion. So I thought, well, okay, so let's look at witchcraft and what does a witch look like? Well, they have long black hair. That's the belief. Okay. Right? That's and black cats and the broom. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They have long black hair. So where do they have long black hair? Well, if you go to certain countries, 
majority of women have black hair and the hair is long. So long black hair was just a natural thing. They would have long black hair. Witchcraft wasn't performed in the, the Scandinavian countries at that particular time when they were mostly blondes. It was performed elsewhere. And so there was that. And did they were and they and you see them with pointed hats. Did they have a pointed hat? Yes, because they lived in the country. They had pointed hats. And what happened was in Paris and in London, the fashion of the day was to wear a pointed hat. That's the fashion. You can look at any history books and you'll see all kinds of pictures of the women in the fashion with the pointed hats. The interesting part about that is that it took 50 to 75 years for that fashion to get into the country. And even though you're only living, let's say, 100 miles from London, it took 50 to 75 years for that, that long for that fashion to get into the, to get into the country. So by the time it got into the country, of course, London's fashions had all changed. And these people in living in the country wore these hats. Did they fly on brooms? That was the next thing you see them flying around on brooms. Did they fly on brooms? Not the women, the men. The men were the ones who had the brooms, not the women. So that got mixed up a bit. So which, it, it doesn't automatically mean female? Yes. And which is a female. And how is the, the male? The male, he got, and the reason the male had the broom. But how do you call the male witch? Oh, you can call him a wizard. And the reason they had the broom, what they did is at harvest time and before harvest time, they planted corn and they planted other things, but especially corn because it was corn brooms. The broom was made of corn, you know, to sweep and everything was made of corn stalks and stuff. So what they did is the men got on the broom and what they had to do was sort of dance around and jump and get the back of the broom up as high as they possibly could so it was like they were flying <laughs> because the belief and superstition was the higher they got that, that's how high your corn would grow. <laughs> okay. And, that, and the, women, the women that were persecuted and witches were burnt at the stake by the hundreds of thousands and killed everywhere in Europe. And the reason they were is because of what they used in their cooking. <coughs> and they would say, well, what, what are you using? You know, and they would say, what are you putting into there? Or what are you cutting out to use? And they'd say, well, I'm going to use some devil's root. Mm -hmm. That's ginger. Okay. I'm going to use some bloody fingers. I'm putting bloody fingers in my stew. That was beets and beets juice. Mm -hmm. So they were using things and the people looked at them, especially the church and everything. Well, look, you know, they're using devil root right from the devil. They're using bloody fingers and, and other things like this. So therefore they must be in coercion and league with the devil. Mm -hmm. So they're persecuted. Most of them were not. They were they, they were the healers of the community, and mm -hmm. they used a lot of this stuff for healing. So witches were all, have always been persecuted, and they still are today because the church would tell you to don't. Mm -hmm. They don't, never look and say, and the witches done any, have they done anything any good, or did they do anything anybody harm? <laughs> and there's no records of any witch, or any Wiccan, which is what they have for a band of witches is a Wiccan. There's no records anywhere in the world of them ever causing harm to anybody.
Uh-huh. But they don't. Anyway, so they had this witches' school, and they wanted to learn more about it. And the witches used to drop in. So what, what brought you there exactly? Oh, I was just living there, and I knew that where they were. I was uh-huh. living in, not too far from the witches' school. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I got to know a few of them, and they used to drop into my house after school and visit with me. And we would talk, and I would learn, and, and actually I would help them with some, <laughs> some different things that they were learning and different beliefs. And you find out that their main belief is uh, not that you can anybody in the world can believe anything they want as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Uh-huh. That's their sole belief. Main, not their sole belief. That's their main belief. You can believe what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else and it'll hurt anyone else. And that's very strong with them. And they do help a lot of people. They, um, If you did some investigations into some of the things that went on, especially in England, during the Second World War, you'd find out that the witches actually took part in the war and did some things that are historically recorded but not considered whatsoever and people don't want to repeat them because they don't make sense and there's no way you can explain them. Uh, like what? <clears throat> when Germany was sending over U-2 rockets. Yeah. Okay, and they're going up. And, and one terror bombings, right? Air bombing, yeah, and, uh-huh. bombing, and bombing London and bombing other places. And one particular time, they were sending them over uh, Dover and and the witches, five witches got on the top of the cliffs and with their thoughts and their beliefs and their incantations and so on they turned aside all the rockets they fell in the ocean they fell where they never hurt anybody and the witches kept doing that actually until they passed out nobody will (laughs) report that because there's no explanation for it so how do you know about it because it has recorded in history Uh but people say no it can't happen I mean that's not true you can't do that and I think we spend too much time in life saying we can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And that's part of what I was getting at when I was talking about education. That we deny things and we say, well, you can't do that, you can't do this. And I think I've seen too many examples of it where, where it's just not true. Mm-hmm. You can. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Another example of that is in the United States, in, in New York City, actually. They're having... They were having these examinations, these mathematic examinations, and there were people who <coughs> applied to take the examination. We're going to get a really good job working through IBM. And so there was, I think it was 17 who registered to take the exam. Well, six, they were supposed to start at 9 o'clock in the morning to do the exam. Well, 16 of them there were there and already. And they were waiting for the 17th guy to show up. And one of the students said, or one of the people there who was going to do the exam said, are there any mathematical problems that can't be solved, like that have no solution? And the professor said, oh yeah, and he wrote two of them on the board, two of these solutions on the board. And then he waited a little longer and said, okay, I guess he's not coming. So they started the exam. Well, the guy showed up late and they handed him the test. Everybody was finished. (coughs) And then he went home and and this guy went home and he was sure that he had failed because he couldn't answer all the questions. He just couldn't answer them all. And it was about two hours later, a limousine pulls up and the professors pull out and they come to his house and they said and they said to him, How did you do this? 
he had solved one of the unsolvable mathematical problems, which they said there was no solution. He was sure that he never got the job because he couldn't solve everything. He only solved all the ones there and obviously got a job and was sent to Germany. Germany has the best math at that time, and I still believe they have the best well, What math. is his name? I can't remember this guy's name, but that's years yeah. and years ago. And he, Germany has the best mathematicians in the world mm -hmm. and have had for years and years and years they, they, they promote. So I've seen that and I said, well, look, there's a problem that can't be solved. The guys solved it. We've solved so many problems through scientists and people start breaking down their beliefs. And I've said to people many times, if you have a look at it, there's, you get this feeling and we are taught to deny our feelings, which to me is so, so wrong. There has, since recorded history, since recorded history, nothing, absolutely nothing has been invented or discovered that didn't involve a feeling. Mm -hmm. Nothing. No scientist, every scientist who has invented something or discovered something had a feeling about it and they went that way. Police work a lot, a lot of police work on their feelings. Nurses know in hospitals and so on, especially in emergency rooms, when people come in, they just have the feeling that there's something wrong with this guy or that the guy is violent and so on. And it turns out to be true most of the time, probably 99% of the time. But we deny all those feelings. Albert Einstein never, never, never denied any of his feelings. And he always said, listen to the voice inside. And when we pay attention to the voice inside, I think we do better in life, we discover more, we're happier, and you've seen cartoons about it, you've seen stories where you've got the one guy on one shoulder <laughs> you know, telling you something good to do, and the guy on the other shoulder telling you something bad. I don't know if you've seen that in cartoons. Yeah, of course. I feel that in my life. <laughs> yes, and you have it. And, you sh and the more often you pay, when you deny these feelings, you usually pay for it somehow. Mm. Okay, I'm going to shut up for a minute. Do you have any <laughs> questions? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kind of shocked in a bit, a little bit because I had no idea that the conversation will <laughs> turn <laughs> up like this. Neither did I. I'm just talking. And I was like, wow, maybe okay. you didn't want to go off on this tangent sort of thing. But yeah, that's my life. And I still, I still look at things and I still um, wonder about, wonder about everything. Yeah. Maybe one question that comes into my mind is that we, of course, heard to a certain extent about um, the burning of the witches and killing them and everything, and and uh, that's appalling, of course. But what what happened to the wizards? Like, where where have they gone? They're quieter. They're still there. They're quiet. Okay. They're they're just that much quieter, and mm -hmm. they run Wiccan and they're males, and they weren't. They don't do the cooking, so they weren't using such things as, as I mentioned, the bloody fingers and the devil roots and so on. They weren't that. They were just organizing. <clears throat> because they were males, and it's a male-dominated society, and still is a male-dominated society, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that, that they were more accepted, and they could also do things, and they were... <clears throat> if you go back in history and you look at it, the, the, these wizards, they weren't necessarily called wizards at that time. They were all advisors to kings. Uh -huh. Right, so they were okay because they would advise the king about this and about that because they would hear things. And 
the further back you go, you can. They're they're shaman. Uh-huh. You've heard the term shaman, of I course. think. Yes, okay, they're shaman. And there's all those kind of people who are males. And because it's still a male to dominate a society, you're accepted as a male, but you're not accepted as a female. And we're still there. Well, what about the wizards who lived uh, in the countryside? Because for sure, that or were they just so much fewer wizards than Very few. Witches? Plus, they were respected people in the community because it's always male. It's a male-dominated society. So if you wanted okay. to something, you would go and go talk to Gabor. He knows about it because he's around. <laughs> yeah, he's been around for years and years. He knows about it. And so he they, he would be this wizard, and he didn't go necessarily and learn and do the same things as the witches did, but he mm-hmm. learned a lot of it. And they'd ask you, and you'd say yes, and you would know about it. <coughs> they were men of common sense. The, 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 the word common sense has changed today to what it used to be, mm-hmm. and, and we forget what it means. Common sense means doesn't mean that everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. It means it is common to a certain group of people. <clears throat> Carpenters who are sawing something or building something, they would, they would have common sense on how to make a corner. Uh-huh. Right? You and I might not have to do that. So that's, we wouldn't consider that common sense even. It's things like that. Farmers were the first ones to exercise common sense saying, don't grow here or don't grow there. This is too wet. This is too dry sort of thing. That is common sense, and it was common to farmers. And we, because our society and because everything is population has grown so much, it's difficult to have common sense anymore. Mm-hmm. What is common in Poland is not common in Canada, and we still have that. It might not even be common in Ukraine, which is your neighbor, sort of thing. So it, it changes. Things change all the time, and we've done away with common sense. So well. What is the connection between wizards and, and common sense? Wizards, like what, what wizards, kind of common wizards sense exor- they have? They exercised a lot of common sense because they knew what was going on in their whole neighborhood. They paid mm-hmm. attention to it. They're just called old wise men. That's another okay. name you could use. The old wise men. So they knew about it. But I'm like, like, like this is interesting. So that's, uh, I mean, uh, almost everything that you said today is is interesting. I'm just, I have heard a lot about uh, witches, yeah, from real life, right? Yeah, that's how what they went through. It's also common knowledge for me that kind of every common community had a witch uh, to go to, but I never really heard about wizards. So, like, of course, there are old people with more common sense because they know more about life but that's nothing really supernatural so that's that comes with age no a shaman is a wizard okay only he's got a different name because he's come from a different place to be called a shaman Uh so he he would be considered a wizard the anyone who who was in any tribes when they go back even to prehistoric days kind of thing any tribes was ever in charge of the tribe would have been considered the wizard because he decided <clears throat> what to do. He knew the best trails to go on. He knew where the best hunting was and so on. And he was the guy who read the stars mm-hmm. or the animal entrails mm-hmm. or the bones. So he would be the wizard just with a different name. What would be a European name for a wizard? I don't know. I'm just trying to think of what I don't know what they were called in Europe. I'll have to find that out. Uh-huh. 
shaman, were they shaman, the king's advisors? I don't know, because I don't know enough about European history. Okay. Whew. Wow. <laughs> I'm a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back on your life, you look back at your life, it's, it's been more than eight decades, so it's a really, really long time. You have seen a lot, etc. What would you recommend for, for the current generation? What, what do you see that, based on your experience, we are doing really, really wrong? Or maybe really, really right? I don't know. Like, what, what would be your main message for, the, for this generation? To think. Mm -hmm. To think for yourself. And don't accept, just accept everything anybody tells you. Think for yourself and investigate it and look at it and decide for yourself what you're going to do. Don't deny the knowledge of the people who seem really weird because they're so different than you and they might do different things and so on. Accept them and learn from them. Don't deny what we do in our society today, and I don't know if it's done everywhere in the world, but it's done most often. As soon as somebody hits 65 or 70, suddenly they have no value and no knowledge. <clears throat> you don't hit an age and then you lose all your knowledge. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. What we do, we put everybody out to pasture and then start looking at them. Look at people like David Attenborough who is, what, 86 now or something like that, and wonderful things. Almost, almost 90, I think. Yeah, and the wonderful things he's doing. Don't deny the older people. Learn from them. Learn from, from your parents. They do have knowledge. It might not be the knowledge you want necessarily or the knowledge you need, but you, I don't, I, we spend more and more time all the time. All the time. We spend more time learning from books and learning that kind of thing, and instead of learning about life and what to do. I believe also that you have to have a belief in something, a strong faith in whatever it is. I have a strong belief in God. I don't consider myself religious whatsoever, not in the least. I have a difficulty with organized religion, because I think it's too much dogma. But I have a strong, strong faith, a strong belief, and I think everybody needs a faith in something to keep moving ahead and to, to, to keep doing well. And I would suggest they all get a faith in, in something. But certainly don't deny anybody anything. Don't deny anybody's knowledge. Learn from it. Don't think that people are weird or wonderful or whatever until you have a look at them. Spend some time. Learn every single thing you can. You never lose out in life with the tremendous amount that you know, or you can keep learning. And have good friends and support your friends at all times through thick and thin, male and female, and work at treating males and females equally. When I was brought up and through most of my life, I would say probably more than half of my life, far more than half of my life, women were subservient. So it took a long, long time, and it's still, and I'm still learning to the the equality of women versus men. I'm still learning about it because, I, as I said, I spent at least the four, 
probably the first 50 years thinking women are subservient and they're not as smart and so on. And I think this younger generation has it was such a wonderful opportunity to learn that now and not have to learn it later on. They are equal or better than us, maybe. <laughs> mm. I don't. I don't really believe in the better than us part, but uh, <laughs> no, equal, like equal, that. definitely. Like you know, just because things were in a certain way, it doesn't mean that the opposite is better. So maybe it's it's a good middle ground somewhere, but equality definitely. And I'm I'm a bit sad that this conversation is ending now because I feel that this is <laughs> really where it begins at the moment. But yeah, then let's call it a day. Yes. For today, I don't know. Maybe we will continue on another day. These words: live and let live. Live and let live. Great final words. Thank you very much, David, and uh, thank you very much for the listeners of um, of me of uh, the podcast of Gabor speaks. I I don't know what what to say. Just. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, just stay tuned for more, please. And always remember to come speak with Gabor at gaborspeaks.com.